Welcome to the third podcast in the UNSW Canberra series, Navigating Uncertainty, on the topic of post-military defence. In these interesting times, careful work in the humanities and social sciences can, we hope, shed light on many of our current challenges and help us chart our ways forward. Today's podcast is sponsored by the International Ethics Research Group based at the UNSW Canberra. This podcast has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. We acknowledge their elders, past and present, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. I am Dr Peter Ballant, and it's my pleasure today to host this conversation. Our guest is Dr Ned Dobos, who is a senior lecturer in ethics at UNSW Canberra in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences and a core member of the International Ethics Research Group. Ned's recent book, Ethics, Security and the War Machine, The True Cost of the Military, looks at the question of the very often not discussed question of jus ante bellum, or justice before war. Ned asks the question of under what circumstances is it justifiable for a state or polity to prepare for war by actually creating its own military. He asks when and why, if ever, is it permissible to maintain a military, the ability to wage war. In his book, Ned runs through a series of risks and costs when it comes to actually maintaining a military. These include the the fact that when we do military training, we condition people in a particular way to be killers, and this can do moral damage to them and to us. The fact that uh, there's the fact that militaries themselves are often the greatest threat to a democracy by uh, in, enacting military coups. He gives the numbers of the high number of military coups that have occurred throughout the world since 1950. The fact that having a military itself, when we're trying to def- for defence, um, can actually cause offence, can cause us to be attacked. Um, this is kind of the Hobbesian idea here. The fact that if we have a military uh, and we spend a lot of money on a military, as we know they cost a lot of money, we, as humans, are more likely to actually use them. The kind of way that if we have a hammer, we're more likely to want to see problems that can be solved by the hammer. And finally, he looks at the cost of the sort of values that are, that are imbued in the military that, that seep into civilian life and the fact that this is, this is not good for us within a democracy. So within the book, Ned, Ned has argued that the military itself may, may not be justified, even if going to war may well be justified. In the book's epilogue, is, he talks about the concept of a post-military defence. And this is the topic I want to take up with Ned today, to understand what is this post-military defence? What is the alternative that Ned is offering if he is so sceptical of having a standing military? So welcome, Ned. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us something about what this post-military defence system, can you, do, can you explain to us then what it's meant to do um, and how it's meant to operate in, in, in the way that current militaries are thought to supposedly operate? Well, a post-military defence system, and, and that's not my term, it, it's from uh, Nobel Peace Prize nominee Gene Sharp. Uh, a, a post-military defence system is one that relies on the civilian population of a country engaging in mass coordinated subversion and sabotage to drive out a foreign aggressor, as opposed to a military defense system where we rely on soldiers with guns to drive out a foreign aggressor. So here's the logic behind post-military defense. 
foreign aggressors and occupiers, they have goals. They don't normally attack just for the sake of it. They come to conquer and rule. They come to extract resources, to gain control over the native people and their po- uh, uh, to profit off their labor and so on. So in order for the aggressor to achieve these objectives at an acceptable cost, he needs the native population to behave in certain ways, right? To, to profit off their labor, he needs them to labor. To implement policies, he needs bureaucrats to administer them. To, if he wants to extract resources, he'll need the participation of farmers and technicians and miners and so on. The aggressor typically can't get what he came for without some measure of cooperation from the target population. So a post-military defense effort looks like this. Say we get invaded. In response, we, one, we withdraw from the economic, social, and political life of the state. We don't go to work. We don't pay taxes. We don't send our children to school, so on and so forth. In addition to that, we engage in subversion and sabotage. We do sit-ins. We do blockades, we go on strike, picket lines, we dismantle and destroy infrastructure and machinery. Uh, just We make ourselves as obstructive as possible. Now sure, uh, the aggressor might probably will use violence in response, but he's going to use violence anyway, right? whether our response is military or non-military, that goes without saying. So basically, post-military defense is about non-cooperation and obstruction to the point that the aggressor has to put more into the occupation than he gets out of it. And that last point is is really crucial. So these non-violent strategies, they they defeat the aggressor not by force, but just by political economics. The people stubbornly refuse to to play along for long enough. The aggressor needs to spend all of these resources enforcing compliance, bringing in his own manpower to do the jobs that we don't want to do. After a while, the fruits of the conquest get whittled down and it becomes a negative cost-benefit equation. It's a resource sink and the aggressor goes away. This might sound like really wishful thinking, yes. but, but if you look at the work of Gene Sharp, um, you'll see that there are many, many historical examples of this kind of thing happening and succeeding. So that's post-military defense uh, and it, a post-military defense system would involve some formal institutionalization and preparation for that sort of thing in advance so that should we get invaded, we're ready to go. Thanks. Um, I mean, by all means, the, the post-national, sorry, post-military defence sound, sounds like a good idea, a kind of last stop, if you like, uh, when, when the military's failed. But why, why are they as effective as the military? Um, is, is, that, is that the idea, that, that, that actually be as effective as having you know, people with guns on our borders and ships and planes and, and whatnot? So let's be clear. Uh, nonviolent civil subversion, post-military defence, it's going to fail sometimes, and it has failed a lot of times. But military defence, violence, also fails sometimes. We might wage a war of national defence and still get conquered, obviously. So having a military is no guarantee against conquest. At most, it reduces the probability of it by some indeterminate amount, which is also true of post-military defense. So the interesting question in, in this space is 
how do violence and non-violence, military and post-military, how do they compare in terms of their effectiveness? Both can fail, both will fail sometimes. Which is less likely to fail, uh, all things considered? And you'd be su- surprised. One of the most impactful studies in this space, called the, the Strategic Logic of Nonviolence, uh, crunches the numbers from the years 1900 to 2006, and it suggests that in that period, nonviolence actually comes out on top. So nonviolent resistance from 1900 to 2006 outperformed violent resistance by a ratio of almost two to one. Wow. So, so major nonviolent campaigns failed half the time, which is a lot of failure, but major violent campaigns failed 75% of the time, which is wow. more failure. Um, so neither is guaranteed to succeed, but nonviolence is, is more likely to succeed if we accept all of that, that research that's going on. And now I'm sure that there are going to be pe- people out there who just don't buy this. They'll insist that military force is, uh, always gives us the best chance of success against a foreign aggressor. And all I can really say in response to that is it, it just shows more faith in violence than the evidence can support. Uh, the evidence into nonviolent post-military resistance said it suggests that it, it can be comparably effective at the very least. It's certainly worth taking seriously as an alternative to the militar- militarized national defense arrangements that we've grown accustomed to. I, okay. I mean, surely we don't want to get to a situation where there's any anyone invading us. Surely we don't want to be invaded. We don't want the military to have to do its job. We don't want our, your suggestion of a post-military defense to do its job either. But isn't that what a military is for? Isn't a military all about deterrence? You know, isn't it the case that if we got rid of this deterrence, if we got rid of the military, where, you know, to use Hobbes's terms, we'd be a fool to lay down our arms unilaterally? And right. isn't, that, isn't that why we should have a military? Um, there's an argument to be made that an effective post-military defence system can equally have deterrent effects. Uh, I won't go into that. What I'll say instead is that I'm very sceptical of the idea that other countries don't attack us purely or primarily because we have a military that deters them. I'm not convinced that military deterrence plays much of a role here anymore, and let me explain why that is. Please do. Um, Once upon a time, states attacked one another regularly. Attempts at conquest and territorial expansion and plundering and colonization, these things were commonplace. Uh, doesn't happen that much anymore. Still happens a little bit, but not that much. This is well documented. You've had this gradual decline in international aggression over the centuries. It's called the declinist literature. Um, The question is, why? Why are we seeing that downward trend in international aggression? Well, uh, this vast literature is devoted to answering that question, and what it suggests is that the decline of war is due to, to many different factors. So I'll just race through a few of them. So for one, the the cost-benefit proposition has apparently changed. In a very economically interdependent world, we can expect greater gains from free trade than we can expect from conquest. Uh, The infrastructure of global commerce basically makes it cheaper to buy things than to plunder them. So that's one thing. Second, you've got Uh, Global institutions now, such as the UN and regional ones like the EU and the the African Union, 
getting bigger and better at preventing disputes from escalating into violent conflict, and they can very severely punish defectors with political and economic sanctions. Uh, third, you've got anti-conquest norms, which are now very widely shared and, and deeply entrenched. The, the old ideas of unity under a hegemon, uh, Holy Roman Empire, they've been displaced by new ideas of uh, sovereign equality and national independence and communal self-determination. Nobody really questions or challenges that, that Westphalian state system anymore, that arrangement, as they once did. You've also got uh, some research about how the political arrangements within states affect the incidence of conflict between them. So, for example, you've got the, the democratic peace theory, which says that democratic countries are much less likely to attack one another for whatever reason. Uh, if that's right, then it stands to reason that a world in which democracy is normal is a world in which armed conflict across national boundaries is going to be abnormal. So, look, I'm not going to belabor the point any further here. Um, what I'm saying is there are all of these different factors that are said to have contributed to this decline of war. All of these multifaceted, interlocking reasons for why states aren't particularly inclined to attack each other these days. And these reasons, notice, don't have anything to do with military deterrence. So you can go one of two ways here. You can, you can think that our likelihood of being attacked is a function of all of these different things that I've just talked about, which is what the research tells us. Or you can think that our likelihood, likelihood of being attacked is still ultimately about military deterrence in the Australian Defence Force and our military alliances. Uh, I, I believe the research, so I'm wary of the idea that military deterrence plays a major role in keeping aggressors away these days. I find that unlikely. Okay. No, thank you. So let, let's say you're right. Let's say that um, we should go for this post-military defence system. It would, be a, it would be a better world if we had a post-military defence system. Um, but right now we don't. We have militaries all around the world. Australia has its own military. Australia has been building it up lately, but all most countries have been too. So if both of them, if both the post-military defence system and the military are supposed to do the same thing, they're both supposed to uh, potentially maybe not deter but keep us safe um, if, if we are attacked, then why, why, not just stick with, why not just stick with the system that we have? You know, as, as we know, in policy terms, as always, costs, changing things has big costs. Why, why change? Why, why get rid of the military and go for this new idea of post-military defence? So that, that's a, a fair question. Um, what I'd say in response is this. Even if military and post-military defence systems ultimately do the same thing, ultimately perform the same functions, we still have one very powerful reason to transition from military to post-military, and that's this. Uh, it's likely to be much less costly. And when I say less costly, I'm not just talking about the money, uh, although there's that too. Militaries are costly in other ways, as you mentioned in your introduction. They're, they're environmentally costly, they're socially costly, culturally and morally. Um, so consider just the moral costs. One of the aims of combat training, 
as you mentioned in the introduction, is and always has been to make soldiers more comfortable with killing people so, so that they can do it repeatedly and efficiently in battle without, without succumbing to emotional trauma and collapsing in, into a heap. Um, now, that conditioning might not always work, of course, but that's its aim. Its, its aim is to allow you to kill without emotional distress because that's what the institution needs from you as a soldier. But a morally healthy person, I think, would experience distress in these circumstances. For a morally healthy person, killing or maiming someone would be an emotionally distressing experience, even if the killing is justified. So even if it's in self-defense, say, if you're of good moral character, I would have thought that it would still be a deeply troubling experience for you to take somebody's life. So it looks like combat training is morally damaging by design. The, the whole point of it is to condition you to respond to things in a way that a morally healthy person would not respond. To allow you to, to participate in the horrors of war without being horrified. And I think that's, that's one very significant cost associated with maintaining a military establishment. You've got to continuously recruit people, mainly young people, into this institution, and then you've got to inflict this moral damage on them to prepare them for the job. So that's one kind of cost that's associated with a military establishment. The advantage of transitioning to a post-military defense system is that it would allow us to avoid some of these very serious costs. Nobody would need to be damaged to effectively participate in non-violent subversion and obstruction. In fact, one of the arguments I make in the book is that the training that people would need to undergo as part of this post-military defense system conditioning might actually be morally enhancing. It might make them better people, morally speaking. So you're right that it, it seems like, well, we've already got a military, and if I'm proposing and others are proposing that we should think about transitioning to uh, a post-military defense system, then aren't we essentially just reinventing the wheel? We've already got an arrangement for national defense. Why dismantle it and construct a whole new one? Uh, the answer would be um, we've, got to, we've got to consider the, the costs that are associated with these respective arrangements, and the costs associated with the military arrangement are very, very high in lots of different ways, and a post-military arrangement would allow us to avoid that. Can I just ask about the the fact that you, you said there's, there's costs to uh, to people in military training, and you talked about that. It's like it was interesting. So far, I've only heard a bit of work in the costs of the military. Uh, can you say a little bit more about the benefits that you just mentioned a moment ago about um, the morally enhancing potentially that, that, that could occur in training for post-military? Sh sure. So. Uh, in in the same way that combat training uh, is degrades certain virtues, we might think that post-military conditioning uh, would enhance certain virtues. Uh, so, so there are a number of different virtues we might identify here. And by virtues, I just mean admir admirable character traits, traits that we think it's good for people to have. Okay, so... Um, one of these traits might be 
loosely speaking, peacefulness. Uh, we, we don't think it's a good thing uh, when people are quick to resort to, to violence, even if violence is, is justified sometimes. So it, if someone has an even temperament, and no matter you know, how much you poke them, they're, they're not, they're not in, going to be inclined to, to lash out physically, we think that's kind of an admirable disposition for somebody to have. Well, I would envisage a post-military defense system would involve, insofar as it, it must rely entirely on nonviolent means and methods, it would involve training people and conditioning people and teaching people how to, uh, how to, to resist the temptation to lash out violently when they're provoked. Uh, and th- this is something that, that Martin Luther King concentrated on. Uh, one of their aims was to provoke violence from the other side without succumbing to the temptation of engaging in violence themselves because he recognized that was uh, necessary for the strategy of nonviolence to work. The other guys use violence. They look bad. You're standing there peacefully. You look really good. Uh, you get a whole lot more sympathy from the public, from the international community. Some of those policemen and functionaries of the state that were using violence become ashamed of themselves and start to defect. They turn against the state that they represent. That's how nonviolence works. So, so a post-military defense system, insofar as it's really going to need um, uh, pe- people to engage purely in nonviolent means and methods, it's going to have to reform and rebuild their characters to be able to do that. And I think that would make them better people. There might be other respects in which uh, a preparation for post-military defense would be virtue enhancing as well. So, and it depends on how you feel about this, but um, a lot of people lament the fact, well, lament the state of our current democracy where most citizens, the extent of their political participation is they vote periodically and that's about it. Okay. Um, We might think we'd have a better democracy, a fuller democracy, a more healthy democracy if people were more inclined to to participate to lobby, to mount political pressure, to protest, to write to their MP, all of these different things. Why don't people do that? Well, one reason might be that people don't think it'll be particularly effective. Another reason is they might think it'll be effective, but they don't know where to begin. They have no idea how to to do this stuff. Post-military defense training will teach them how to do this stuff. And it would also disabuse them. I mean, just like people at a military academy are taught about the history of violent conflict and what works and what doesn't, people at a post-military defense academy will get taught what works and what doesn't in that domain. So they'll be disabused of this idea that that non-violent resistance uh, can't work. So hopefully they'll come out of that as better democratic citizens, even if they never have to actually engage in post-military defense against an aggressor. So that's the respect in which I think there are these there are these advantages associated with a post-military defense system. We don't simply avoid the costs of the military. We, there's a bonus there as well. So it's, we end up with a much more participatory democracy, to use that term. It, ideally, yes. Yeah. That's one potential benefit. You know, obviously, it's going to depend on how exactly you, you train these people and condition these people, but that's what, one thing that I think we could reasonably expect. Can I ask another question, which is about, have you got 
you mentioned earlier that there, there are cases where this has worked. Would you be able to give us an example or two of, of this, of post-military defence in action? So what, one example of very effective non-violent resistance is from Ireland, and you had Arthur Joseph Griffith, who was a, a writer, newspaper editor, and politician who founded the, the political party Sinn Féin. So he, he mounted non-violent struggle against the British in Ireland, this campaign of civil subversion. Um, and it, it achieved a, a great deal, didn't achieve, achieve you know, complete success in its own right, but achieved a, a great deal into pressuring the, uh, the British into withdrawing uh, from, from Ireland and relied on uh, both a negative strategy and a positive strategy. The negative strategy was to divest from the institutions of British rule so the people that participated, they, like I say, they, they evaded taxes, they went on strike, they didn't send their kids to the schools that the British had set up. They didn't, if there was a crime, they didn't report them to the, to the British police. They didn't participate in the courts. They didn't vote. So they completely withdrew from uh, the institutions that the British had set up. Uh, they also set up parallel institutions that you could... Uh, so instead of going, you know, you need to buy bread, you don't want to buy bread from the shopkeeper that's been put there by the British, so they would set up their own shops, their own courts, their own public service, uh, things like this. So it was quite kind of recognised that if people simply divest from the, from the existing institutions, they'd be left without a lot of the necessities in life, so they figured out a way to provide those things. So there was that uh, negative component, there was also a positive component and that's where we're talking about the sabotage the obstruction um so you know if if if, uh, uh, if one of the troublemakers was arrested by the british authorities and ordered to appear before the court the people would just blockade the streets so that nobody could get to the courthouse so th- that sort of thing it just really grinds everything to a halt Ma- makes makes the occupation a real nuisance for the occupier and kind of mounts that sort of political pressure and economic pressure on them. Okay, thanks. So, look, post-military defence is a fascinating idea. Um, I can see from what you said that there's there's definite benefits and there's real cost to the military, as you said. But I guess the the, the comeback at this stage is the classic. Um, well, that's that's great, but really Australia and I presume any other militarised country. It's got very little chance of actually of actually taking your advice and considering it, um, and considering what what you've called transarmament transarmament to a post military alternative. Why do you think it is that we're we're unlikely to go down this pathway of post military defence, even though, as you suggest, it's a it's the right way to go? So again, transarmament. That's not my language. <laughs> I, I can't take credit for that. That's that's Gene Sharp again, and the re- the reason he used the word transarmament rather than then disarmament is because he didn't like the idea that by, by moving to a post-military alternative, we'll be disarming ourselves against aggressors. He just wants to say we're relying on different kinds of weapons than the ones that we're used to, the military hardware. Okay, but, but you're right. Um, there's likely to be very little appetite for this kind of proposal in, in most countries. There is in some countries. In fact, I read uh, just the other day the New Zealand Greens 
their their defence and security policy has as one of it one of the items on the list a commitment to looking into civilian based defence alternatives. I know that doesn't commit them to very much, <laughs> but, but at least a, a commitment to considering it. So there there are some places where uh, it's it's being looked at, and places where something like this has has already happened. Costa Rica would be. A uh, notable example, or at least the negative side of it, they've abolished their armed forces. Um, but in in most other countries, there's not going to be much appetite for it. One of the reasons for that is a reason that I've already alluded to. Uh, I dare say most people still assume that at the end of the day, violence is the surest, most effective way of getting things done. And as long as that assumption is in place, there's not likely to be much interest in transitioning trans armament armament to the to post-military alternative. But the, the problem runs even even deeper than that, I think. There's, there are a few interesting quirks that experimental psychologists have discovered, which I think uh, uh, reinforce this. One of them is, is what they're now calling the existence bias. Uh, ex- but essentially, if something exists, They've shown that we've unreflect- we tend to unreflectively assume that it is justified in existing. It exists, therefore it is good that it exists. Um, David Hume speculated that this was the case, and now they've proven it. So people have this immediate, unconscious, favorable response to things that are established. They, they imbue the status quo with this unearned quality of goodness without much uh, deliberative thought. So that's the existence bias. Um, on top of the existence bias, you've also got what they call the longevity bias. Uh, the longevity bias simply is the longer something has existed, the more good we tend to unreflectively attribute or assign to it. Okay, so long-standing states of the world are assumed to be better than, than uh, more recent states of the world. So you can see where I'm going with this. Mm. Uh, most national militaries have long histories and time-honored traditions behind them. So if we're saying we, we need to consider replacing the the military with some post-military alternative, well, we're going to come up against these biases, the existence bias, the longevity bias. These things just make it very difficult for people to impartially appraise the two alternatives. They'll They'll look for problems with the the new proposal, and they'll see all of the positive features uh, of the, the existing arrangement. Right? So you've got uh, the faith in violence, you've got these psychological biases. Finally, and, and probably the most obviously, there are vested interests in the military establishment. The US President Dwight Eisenhower was also a general. He coined this, this term, the military-industrial complex. Right? So many of us are directly or indirectly reliant on the military apparatus, including you, including me. <laughs> so it's, it's to be expected that there's going to be this fierce resistance, fierce opposition to any ap- proposal which involves doing away with something which so many people are reliant on for their livelihoods and careers. Thank you, Dr. Nandobos, for joining us today for a fascinating discussion on, on the post-military. And thanks to our audience listening today for their interest. This was the third in UNSW's uh, Canberra's Navigating Uncertainty podcast. Please join us next time when we explore the topic of corporate power in Australia's democracy with Dr. Lindy Edwards. Thank you.